0: Life for animals sucks. I'm
1: gonna have to do the thing like Merlin Man does and have flashcards, three by five cards. Dude, mm. hey, that's why I got a notebook. This is my brain. This is my brain.
0: So, um, with regards to any self-defense system, meaning a more in a, in a more holistic sense, not just like a self-defense system like, say, oh, I study this particular martial art or, um, you know, I, I do pistol shooting or, you know, I got a taser or
1: some mace on me.
0: Self-defense system, meaning your plan to survive. Um,
1: yeah. Kind of a holistic view at what it is you have to do in order to come out of a situation.
0: Yeah. So I would put like part of your self defense system you know being like pay your friggin electric bills so you know you can have lights that light up your yard you know Mm -hmm. like it's christmas so your security cameras pick up anyone on your property when they shouldn't be make sure your car is gassed
1: so make sure you know where the keys are yeah
0: exactly i have a really hard time with people excusing their negligence or absent-mindedness. Like, write it down. Mm-hmm. Write it down. You got smartphones. Set a... I mean, for God's sake, my um, flip phone has the ability to, you know, set a reminder, have an, uh, an alarm for something,
1: you mm-hmm. know. And a lot of people will probably have something along the lines of a smartwatch, like an Apple Watch or something, that they can do that and have it on their wrist at all times. Yeah,
0: but your system needs to be built around your circumstances. You know, obviously everyone's circumstances are different. People have limited means. You know, people have different schedules. So your system has to be built around your circumstances. I know that when I first got into self-defense, combatives, martial arts, security stuff, um, I tended to... Yet a little too focused on the brands that were presented to me, so I was like,
1: gearhead stuff,
0: yeah, and, and and not just brand as like a line of products, but a brand meaning like a prepackaged system, so yeah. like taekwondo. There were, <laughs> I remember in my early martial arts like explorations, I, I was trying to find the best martial art mm-hmm. and uh, say, compare taekwondo to. Jitsu, or to boxing to kickboxing or to various forms of wrestling my god there's so many different martial arts out there but
1: yeah and i mean i comparing them sounds like an impossible task yes you would have to know the whole system really inside and out in order to make a proper comparison as far as i know
0: but i would i would find myself limiting myself i would have a problem like, what happens if someone attacks me at, at a urinal?
1: hmm Practical issue.
0: And then I'd look at, say, taekwondo, and there were no particular techniques dealing with someone attacking you.
1: No urinal form.
0: Yeah. 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 And I would limit myself. I'd say, oh, well, that's not taekwondo. That's not taekwondo.
1: Why defend yourself at a urinal if it's not part in of the voice system <laughs> exactly if it's if yeah. it's not in this if it's not accounted for in the system then why be worried about it yeah
0: and it sounds stupid but you know people do it all the time they say well oh, i i'm a mac person mm-hmm. or i'm an apple person they put themselves in a box um
1: you understand this is already a tech podcast you just mentioned apple so this is a tech podcast <laughs> oh, now i'm gonna have to put that in the tags.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i guess the more hashtags the better
1: Yeah. I mean, well, you know, not that we couldn't talk about tech. There's definitely some interesting discussions to be had about tech. Maybe not necessarily the way that a lot of other tech podcasts are doing it. Like I know a specific one and for the sake of it, I'm not going to name it. That is specifically an iPad efficiency podcast is how to make your workflow work the best for iPads. And that's any workflow, any kind of production, especially podcasts, stuff like that, but any kind of online productivity and how you can specialize that for a pod or for a, for an iPad. But that's not really the kind of tech we would get into if we were going to get into tech. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that's not really a field that you're terribly mm, interested no, in. No,
0: no, no. But yeah, anyway, um, limiting yourself. So when it comes to say self-defense with a firearm, I see so many people, and there have been so many new gun owners Um, the last several years of Trump's administration, since COVID, you know, was a thing, so many new gun owners. And I see all these people come into the range and putzing around, you know, the gun community, asking all these really dumb questions and just you can tell they're they're limited in their understanding they're thinking brand they're thinking
1: consumer dumb questions like what
0: like they come in obviously not interested in sporting firearms because mm-hmm. they go straight to the tactical stuff yeah you know the stuff they use in their video games or they see on tv and they're like so you guys got any ar's mm-hmm. when like mm-hmm. it's an open display and anyone with a modicum of understanding, they watch the news... And eyesight. (laughs) Yeah. Would be able to see if they had any ARs. It's just, do you have any ARs? And do you have any Glocks? And maybe they might not say Glock, they'll say, like, 9 mil.
1: Hmm. So at least now we're talking a
0: Caliber, which is a little better, but...
1: Well, and you do have this kind of colloquial 9, like calling it a 9 or something. Yeah. And
0: then I see a lot of folks who are already kind of initiates in the gun community Mm -hmm. doing a disservice to new gun owners or prospective gun owners. And uh, they kind of just go with the question. They answer the question. They don't try to sit back and say, hey, maybe you should look at this differently.
1: Mm. Let's talk about your perspective. Yeah. The perspective that you're coming to this situation with and how that might be improved.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, instead of saying, hey... Well, we have uh, this AR, that AR. Maybe you should be asking the person. You should be asking the person. Do you need an AR? Mm. And I, I can hear. What all is the- your
1: situation? Yeah. Do you
0: live in an apartment? Do you live in a condo? Because um, ARs definitely shouldn't be in your arsenal. At least your self-defense arsenal. You're, mm-hmm. you're. I'm grabbing this gun to defend myself.
1: Yeah, because an AR round, that five five six round, is going through the entire of, building. Yeah, all of the walls in that building. It's
0: killing everyone in the way.
1: Like there, you like to make this joke or I, people like to make this joke about, you know, something like a 50 caliber or a, or a 44 or something like that, you know, it's going to go through this guy, and it's going to go through the guy behind him, it's going to go through him, yeah. and it's going to hit the guy in the back and he's going to be discouraged or whatever. Yeah. But like a 556 5. is not a big bullet. No it's not a big round to begin with, but the bullet is not large, but it has enough power and is sharp enough, you know like pointed enough that it's
0: yeah.
1: it's going through and fully jacketed like that bullet is not gonna flatten out immediately no it's no. gonna keep going even if it's tumbling, it's mm-hmm. gonna keep going, and you know yeah. if you get hit by even a tumbling bullet, it's not gonna make your day any better no so uh unfortunately,
0: you see. Folks in the the gun community or self defense community combatives community etc doing a, and also in the prepper world mm. it's it, it's just consumer answers to consumer problems, yeah not answers to actual problems
1: problems of, of practicality of efficiency yeah so for me,
0: my solution has been throughout the it's kind of solidified over the past couple years. If I own a firearm, if I own a weapon, I practice with each and every one of those weapons. Yeah, It's not just going to sit there and collect dust.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to. It, it came up today that when you put it down and you leave it down, you forget how to use it. You forget that familiarity. And it's not like a bicycle because you don't have to use a bicycle in a potentially dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah. When you pick up the thing that you have to potentially use for the sake of its lethal force, you have to know what you are doing. Mm-hmm. And Obviously I'm not telling you anything, but, <laughs> but yeah, to clarify, yeah, you know, your, your fine motor skills are going to
0: go out the door. You're going to have, your hands it, are shaken. Yeah. You, know, you, you might piss yourself. You might shit yourself. You're, gonna experience tunnel vision auditory exclusion you're gonna be under the influence of primal terror of adrenaline (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i hate these internet warriors who they throw out all these easy solutions they nitpick these things that they have no understanding of Mm. They say, oh, well, that's not practical, or this
1: is practical, such and such. Well, and I think that is a good place to, both for us and what should be for them, the the Paul Harrell qualification. Yeah. The, this is what works for me, and I'm going to tell you why it works for me and yeah. why I like doing it. This is not a recommendation. Yeah. This is what I do and why. Yeah. You find your own what and why. Mm-hmm. And, like, for me, the system that I've developed for myself,
0: um, you know, at this point, I only have one gun, a handgun, yeah, 22 like, long rifle. The little Ruger Mark IV, yeah. And, if, yeah. You don't mind me saying no. And it does what I want it to do. I've got a, a carry system that works for me. Every night before I go to bed, I stage that firearm in a way that it's ready to be deployed should I need it mm. to be deployed. And then I regularly practice deploying it, mm. getting out of bed, presenting the firearm in the direction that I most expect a, a threat to manifest. And
1: then yeah, you're, you're not going to be necessarily getting up and going to the windows and you yeah, know, yeah. looking at a horde come across the yard or something yeah. like that. You're, you're
0: going to be most likely dealing with someone who has entered... Your are domicile, and you're going to be under the effects of adrenaline. You know, anytime something goes bang in the night, it's like, oh, you get that sick feeling in your gut. Like, mm-hmm. I'm about to be violated, or I'm
1: behind the curve. And Well, so <laughs> we were sitting here at the table earlier today, and the instructor for the HQL course was talking about waking up in the middle of the night and hearing that bang and, you know... You want to be able to have whatever it is that you've chosen as your method of self-defense ready and to go there yeah. and then. Yeah. Because you want to be able to meet that threat as soon as you can or, or as as ready as you can. Yeah. And grandma and I looked at each other and kind of shared a laugh. And I didn't know whether it came off wrong to the to the instructor because I didn't I certainly didn't intend to be laughing at what he was saying. Yeah. But that Halloween night, yeah, uh, the clocks changed, and I had had some to drink and had gone to bed, and had woken up around two or three in the morning to hear shuffling around outside my door and beeping that in my state I did not understand. <laughs> and you just you hear those sounds and you don't, especially if you've just woken up or something. Yeah. You've just come up groggy out of sleep, you're hearing noises that you don't have a framework to put in, you don't have a context for them, and so you don't really know what to do with them, mm-hmm. and however jumpy I was, but came out, and I didn't know what I was going to meet. At that time, I did not have anything at my disposal for self-defense beyond my own <laughs> readiness, my own body, you know, and came out and looked down the hallway and saw Grandma stick her head around and go, you okay? Okay. And I almost threw up. Went to my hands and knees. (laughs) Like, looked down at my hands, and they were white. I could... The beds of my nails were purple. (laughs) And that was the only part of my hand that had any color in it. Yeah. And so, yeah. Just in a context like that, you are, and I was, overcome by the situation. And by the adrenaline going through you. And by the fact that you don't know what's going on. Yeah. And that's... Why it is so important to go through simulation?
0: Like it's not enough to know something intellectually. Your intellect is not going to be part of the equation when you're under those effects. Yeah. You know, once upon a time people called it a muscle memory. You still hear it from time to time. Now they like to say developing neural pathways and um, patterns in your mind and body. Yeah. That is it. Laying down. Lay down in bed. Get up out of bed. Go get the pistol. Mm. And for me, it's loaded and ready to go. All I'm doing is turning the safety yeah. off. You know. And then present in the direction that you expect the threat to manifest. And then another thing, I see so many people with the range, you know, they get up there and they they feel like the next Navy SEAL action hero, whatever, and they're up there busting rounds out. And then the reload just kind of happens and they go back to shooting it's like the reload is a period of transition periods of transition
1: are always vulnerable Mm -hmm. you're exposed it's the axis on which the whole situation turns yeah that if you have not already dealt with what you need to deal with by the time you need to reload that reload is very important yeah even in in test shooting i i was watching this guy do a run through a kettlebell test yeah where he had to take his, it was a Finnish, I can't remember what it's called, like the M39 or something like that, but the Finnish version of the Mosin-Nagant, the later version of the Finnish Mosin-Nagant, and he would have to throw the kettlebell and get down and fire from prone, Mm -hmm. and a couple different times he misses, and this gun only has five rounds in it, and, and working the stripper clips, Mm-hmm. In the cold, yeah. with frozen hands, like that, killed his time. Yep. Absolutely killed his time. Yep. Sure, his his missings were the cause of that. Yeah, but the reload times really stuck it to him. Even mm-hmm. in just test environment like that, you're ne- you're never going to run across a situation in real life where practically you have to throw a kettlebell, sure. lug a bolt action over, get down on the ground, fire it. Yeah, but the lesson is still there. Yeah. And going back to,
0: you know, the fixation on a particular tool or brand rather than looking at your situation and, you know, custom making a a solution to to deal with that problem. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see a lot of these gun guys do drawing their firearm from all sorts of funky positions, which is good. That should be done because... If you have to use a firearm, you're probably not going to be in the most like ready state. Yeah. It's going to be under duress. You're going to be like flopping through your clothes, you know, depending on what season it is. It might be a lot of clothes. And depending on how well you've staged your firearm on your person, you know, if you put a pocket pistol in a pocket, it shouldn't have anything else in that pocket. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be no keys, no wallet, no, nothing else. No chapstick, nothing only the pistol should be in that pocket because you don't want everything to go flying when you're trying to draw your pistol. So when you reach in there, you are getting one thing and
1: there's nothing in the way of that.
0: Yeah. But, you know, I see them drawing their firearms from all sorts of funky positions, like really, particularly when you get into CQC stuff. Um, CQC? Yeah, close quarter combat. Gotcha. Um, or sometimes you'll hear CQB, close quarter battle. Doesn't Doesn't matter. There's some good stuff being taught, like, you know... You raise your non-firing hand and kind of push the person away while you're drawing your firearm. And that non-firing hand is creating space in order for you to deploy your firearm. But at that point, it would probably be better to deal with that person because they're so dang close. Deal with them entirely empty-handed. Because then you have two hands on the person Hmm. dealing with the threat. Create space using both hands. Push them away. And then use both hands to get to your firearm. Or run. You might not even have to deploy your firearm at
1: that Mm -hmm. point. And that's probably another whole topic that you could get into. Is dealing with when and why to draw your firearm if you have it. Oh yeah. At least the impression I get from what few demonstrations and talks I've heard about doing such things, because they are focused on firearm situations, situations in which either you or the other person have been threatened with the deadly force of a firearm, that they just automatically assume that guns are drawn. Yeah. That guns will be drawn, period. That's like the foundation of what we're going to go on from here. How do you draw it? What do you do when you draw it? What do you do after you've fired it? But it is definitely valuable to talk about why and how you should draw your firearm in the first place. Yeah. What situations can be avoided? Well, in that,
0: avoidance should be the the starting place.
1: Counter prevention.
0: Yeah. But see, avoidance often gets called uh, paranoia. People who practice situational awareness, and I know this from personal experience, tend to—you get labeled paranoid, and then you also get labeled uptight, and, like, mm. you can't enjoy anything. Really, it's—I think everyone else is just being oblivious. Like, you know, mm. the, the, the saying is, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And I would add to that, but only once. It's true. Once you you get screwed over, you're screwed over and you carry
1: that the rest of your life. And it's basically like the bar of awareness has been set so low because of whatever practical necessity for awareness exists for the majority of people. So that when that low bar is exceeded by someone who is more situationally aware, more generally aware... Then it does come off as a kind of paranoia because yeah. you're just, you're looking yeah. always. And I think that's a, a good distinction to make that the difference between paranoia and situational awareness is that situational awareness is just keeping your eyes open for what might happen. Yeah. Whereas paranoia is assuming something will happen or assuming something that is is there that you don't know about yeah. or that, that you need to deal with that's somehow secret. Whereas the situational awareness is like, I'm sitting here prepared. And if something does happen, we're good. Or at least I know about it. It's not catching me with my pants down. Precisely.
0: If you're familiar with um, Jeff Cooper, he was one of the founding fathers of relatively modern, you know, firearm school of thought. Some of his ideas have, it's more his um, thoughts on your emotional state, situational awareness, I guess kind of more the soft elements of mm. your the the, the more um,
1: unpredictable elements,
0: not so much that. Just think like uh, software. Really, it's how you think, your perspective, those sorts of things mm. have stayed. Uh, they've kind of made their way into to modern gunfighting, if you'll call it that. Whereas some of his like hands-on shooting techniques have kind of fallen out of style, but a lot of the the guiding principles that he uh, talked about um, are still with us. Um, But anyway, he had this color code system um, for gauging what sort of situation you were in, how to determine a threat. And so Jeff Cooper had this color code system. He taught... To help folks understand different levels of situational awareness. The lowest level of awareness is called white. And that's where you're unprepared and unready to take action. Mm. The next one is yellow. That's where you are prepared, alert, and relaxed. And this is a a good level of situational awareness. Um, The next level is orange. You're alert to probable danger and ready to take action. Next level is Condition Red, and that's go time. There's a definite threat, and you're addressing it. Yeah. Um, and then there's Black, which is you're totally not in control of the situation. You're over, like we were saying, you're overwhelmed by the situation. Snafu. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you're done. Which, unfortunately, most people, if they experience, they, most people live in Condition White, that goes
1: straight to black.
0: Yep, straight to black. There is no in between. It's, oh God, I'm blindsided. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And this is where, that's where you get all those horror stories of uh, mm. folks that say, I never thought it would happen to me. And
1: then it does. The issue is that you thought it wouldn't happen to you. And again, not about being paranoid, yeah. but about being in that yellow zone and understanding that I should be aware. Yep. When I house sat, I went to the house, especially at night, I went to the house, and I knew where I was and what I had to do. And I was aware that, and not necessarily that any threat was really present, but that going through the fence, going up to the door, when I got into, you know, the little back porch, and I go to unlock the door, my head's kind of over my shoulder as I'm unlocking the door so that I can't be taken, you know, in the back. Mm -hmm. You know, and at the very least, and this is the thing, at the very least, know what's going to happen. Yeah. You might not be a hero. You might die that day, but you knew what was happening. Yep. And you, maybe you didn't know how to deal with it, yep. but you were aware. And that's, I think a lot could be said about the, the show up and die yep. in that kind of situation. Yeah. Or you're showing up, and in this case, very, very low level, but you're showing up, you're doing your duty and you might die. Yep. And there might be nothing you can do about that, but still you're going and you're doing the duty and you're dying. Of course, like I said... That situation with the house sitting it wasn't that there was any actual perceived threat on my part but that i was aware and those mental components are as important as the physical
0: components when it comes to training yeah you must develop mind along with body unfortunately most people go with one or the other you must develop both together all of the time
1: i definitely lean toward mind (laughs) And my tendency is to
0: go with the body. But, you know, you put in your your work and you develop a system that works for you, that incorporates mind-body elements, that is appropriate for your situation in life. Any handicaps, any predispositions, financial resources, time resources, all sorts of things. But coming up with a, a good self-defense self-preservation plan it's got to address logistics Mm. it has got to address logistics and i use logistics to cover a whole slew of things for an example people will talk about carrying and you'll have the guys that are like i'm going to carry the biggest gun that i possibly can yeah and i don't care if i'm comfortable well a lot of those guys because they're not Actually, as badass as they think they are. Mm-hmm. They end up leaving that heavy gun at home, so it just exists in their mind. So maybe their mind goes to that gun as they're lying there dying in the street. But that's not going to help them a whole lot. Yeah. And then you have the other folks who are like, I'm going to carry the lightest little thing that I possibly can. But the thing with those light little guns is there's nothing to them. So recoil tends to be pretty dang snappy. Yeah. And they're also loud as all get out. So they're not very accurate at all. Which, again, you're dealing with close quarters. So accuracy is of less concern than mm-hmm. other things.
1: And especially, and I keep coming back to this in my own thoughts about dealing with firearms in general, is sound. Yeah. Like you're in that close quarters combat and you are already tunnel visioned and maybe your hearing's going out because of, you know, the adrenaline or something. Your blood's pumping in your ears, you know, and you can you can hear it but almost nothing else. Yeah. You fire a 9 mm tiny little thing. Yeah. And your ears are ringing. And so there might there could be something about the situation that has changed maybe at the moment of your firing or sometime after when your ears are still ringing, that you could only be auditorily aware of. And you're not now mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. Your ability to be aware of that is impaired. Yeah. You know, be that like the th- example that comes to mind, and I guess it doesn't really matter whether this is practical. It's just an example of this. Say, for instance, there is an undercover cop where there's a cop that comes around, period. Yeah. And he's behind you or something. Yeah. And you can't hear. Yeah. And he's saying something or yelling something and you can't hear him. Uh-huh. Maybe there's another assailant behind yeah. you who has just cocked his gun <laughs> right behind your head. Yeah. And you can't hear it. And I mean he'd have to be a dumbass to put it right against the back of your head, <laughs> you know, and then you'd feel it and you'd you'd realize, you know, and it's not a cop that's gonna do that. And you also realize you're fighting one
0: scary SOB. Yeah.
1: He's like Gestapo, like, executing
0: you right there in the street. Like, doesn't. Your Your
1: problems are. (laughs) Much larger now. Yeah, and like, doesn't matter of all the gore that might get all over him and splatter out of your head. Man, or, you know, there's any number of things that could change that could only come to you auditorily in that situation. And so I've I've tried to be very aware of my hearing, especially, and I'm becoming more aware of it now because of various situations in which something's being said or or played at a distance. And more often than not, I have to get closer or turn it up or something like that. Like watching a movie in the evening. Yeah. Most of the time, I have to have it turned up yep. a little bit because otherwise, for some, and I. I'm sure this has to do with the fact that I have listened to loud music for a very long time at this point. I mean, there have been full-on metal concerts I've gone to without hearing protection. And that's not wise. But I was 16 and I was like, I don't care. My hearing will be fine. And then now, at 22, it's not like I can't hear. But there is a difference. You 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 notice a a diminishment in your abilities. Exactly. (laughs) And so I'm trying to have my eyes and ears work. So, uh,
0: yeah, and the, the, the thing with with any of your senses, you know, if you look at all of life as this big game of survival, like, let's say you survive that crazy situation, you know, you beat off a mugger or uh, would-be rapist or something like that, but in so doing, you've taken out one of your senses. The rest of your life is not going to be so hot you will be diminished and you know it's great if you survive that attack but then you might get run over because you couldn't hear a car coming Mm -hmm. or you didn't see something falling
1: down um and it crushes you didn't hear the tree creaking yeah as it was about to fall on you or something yeah
0: so you have to spend your resources wisely your sensory resources yeah yeah And that's what all of this boils down to, is a a wise expenditure of resources. You're trying to survive, so what makes sense for you in your particular situation to help you survive? But then we could get into a whole other topic of, well, you shouldn't try to survive past, you know, what's reasonable. Because you got to die of something. You know, I've heard countless stories of people just... Being kept alive for an extended period of time mm-hmm. in this vegetative state,
1: is that's not life. That's mm-hmm. not living. Um, and usually those people... Well, I think it is reasonable to say that no one would like to live in a vegetative state. Yeah. And it's also not unreasonable to say that someone may go into a vegetative state for one reason or another and be able to come out of it. Yeah. Capable of recovering. But... Many times, and the the same is true with death, period, it is the people who are around that person that have the trouble, that have the issue. More often than not, the people who are around the person who is in a vegetative state or who has died are the ones who feel the effects of that. Yeah. And it is the the kind of selfishness of compassion, the the selfishness of familial love that keeps those people from letting go of the yeah. person because the person themselves if they're in the vegetative state, they don't want to live like that. No. They and at that point they obviously have no capacity to will that we know of, but I'm pretty sure it's not a stretch to say person doesn't want to be vegetative yeah and at a certain point if i were to say to you would you like to be vegetative for 30 years no
0: of course not i'd say shoot me out of a cannon somewhere like let me go out with a bang yeah if i can't control my fall (laughs) make me fall in a grand fashion
1: but if you were only vegetative for maybe a year and would come back if there were some hypothetical guarantee that you would come back after a year you'd be fine yeah. but like with, with that and with death it is the living and, and the conscious who are caught up in their own feel about the person and are unable to let that go and in many cases that serves as a good thing in many cases that serves as a positive familial bond between people yeah. but sometimes it can become really perverted like that and i don't mean perverted as sexually perverted I mean, you know it becomes yeah. distorted Well, and there's, um, you know, if we go
0: beyond thinking about individual survival, there's the survival of the community. And to keep someone alive in a vegetative state, let's say there was that hypothetical guarantee where they'd come out of that state after a year. Well, Mm -hmm. to keep them alive for a year is a lot of money. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of... Back and forth, you know, taking trips to the hospital to make sure that they're all right, or let's say they have in-house care. All that stuff adds up, and so it's putting a a toll on the community.
1: Yeah. Um, It becomes a a kind of logistics problem. Yeah. And
0: it's not to say that the community shouldn't take that on, but they are taking it on, and there is a cost.
1: There is an anthropologist, and I feel awful for not remembering her name, but... She is a, uh, a paleoanthropologist, so she studies the fossil remains of human civilizations, the, the artifacts of human civilizations, as, as long as there have been human civilizations in the fossil record. And she was once asked, and again, I'm sorry for forgetting her name, what do you think is the first sign of human civilization? Where do you see, or uh, what is a symptom in a recorded like in a recorded fossil or something like that or artifact that suggests to you the beginning of human human civilization the switch from being basically wild animals to being civilized people and you know what she said a healed femur Mm -hmm. because for a community that is incapable of dealing with someone who has a broken femur who and if you have a broken femur you can't do anything yeah. you especially in a prehistoric situation sure you are a liability yeah. you are the weak one in the herd at the best you are just being a weight on the people who have to carry you and maybe at the worst you're being prey for a predator yeah. you know but she said a human civilization the first signs of it that there is a logistic system that can take care of people is when you can have a broken femur and have it heal and not die broken. Yeah. You know, because if it's healed, then you've survived and you've been taken care of long enough to survive. And that's of course a deep insight from someone who knows much more than me, but I would not have thought of such a thing. I wouldn't have considered it. I would have said something dumb like pottery or something, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's,
0: it's good because there's uh there is this, this is cruelty this um this harshness to primitive survival
1: where when you stop putting in that's it sorry um you hunt or you gather yeah when you can't sorry you're either a child or you're dead yeah yeah and i think that isn't thought enough about just
0: like that Mm -hmm. that is our natural state yeah that's our natural state
1: everything else is this construct well I think that, and maybe this is going on in your mind as you say that, there are a lot of philosophers, even from the 18th century, maybe going back further and I don't know about it, like Locke, talking about or trying to define the thing that philosophy has called the state of nature. What is the state of nature? What is a human in its pure natural form? Yeah. And... That if you could define it would allow you to better contextualize those parts of human culture and thought and society that aren't natural. And that state of nature is is I can't remember which philosopher said it, but that state of nature is in, is the one in which your life is nasty, brutish, and short. There's this uh, misconception,
0: you know, you see it a, a decent bit, you know, that you got. Folks running around uh, thinking that our natural state is some blissful, like we're in harmony with the earth. and
1: Eden kind of situation. Yeah,
0: and we're all like singing Kumbaya and wouldn't it be great if we could just return to that. And I'm like, have, have you watched a Nat Geo documentary? Life for animals sucks. Um, it's way simpler than <laughs> ours. You can, there's things to be envied, like all they're really concerned about is getting food and mating and sleeping and Mm -hmm. that's kind of what they do but getting any of those things is can be this titanic
1: task Mm -hmm. Um, it can be a life or death situation yeah yeah i think that is a realm of inquiry that a lot of people do not consider because they are so distant from it. And this kind of touches on a topic that we should do later and do a, a more full discussion about. But the social distancing of being a civilized person in a civilized world. You are distanced from that kind of existence to where maybe you can't even think Think about it, like not just whether it comes naturally to you or instinctively, but you can't actually even put yourself in the shoes or not shoes of a primitive person (laughs) or even even a person living in the medieval world. You know, a peasant in the medieval world, you are so much more hard pressed to the land and to the caprices of nature around you in a way that is hard for us as 21st century people to imagine like the apex of your life would be getting a good crop and
0: you know your feudal lord not beating the shit out of you exactly
1: (laughs) not having you know bandits or something come in or or, you know god forbid nomadic tribes come in and destroy your entire social structure we don't really have to worry about that everybody's like oh no terrorism and you want to talk about terrorism the mongols like, a terrorist who's got a bomb and blows up a city street or something is horrific and terrible. But imagine if thousands of terrorists came riding in on horses <laughs> with bows that are more powerful than you've ever seen, and they can fire them quicker than you could blink, and they are about to come in and literally destroy your civilization. Like, we're not here to just blow up a square, we're not here to kill a few people in make a state yeah we're here to destroy your civilization period not undermine it destroy it.
0: reduce you to your natural state
1: yep of running around looking for berries whilst running away from the predator yep. we will come <laughs> in and we will burn it down and we will be king of the ashes yeah but that's a kind of existential threat that is very very distant from us It's distant from me. I cannot imagine that. I can talk about the hypothetical of it, but I can't imagine being in that situation. I can't imagine being the people in China that saw the Mongols coming.
0: I can imagine it very briefly because I'd be one of those people looking at them in bewilderment and terror, and then maybe there would be a split-second realization that it's over
1: before it is,
0: in fact, over.
1: Yeah. (laughs) There is a moment you get... And back then, you didn't even get a last cigarette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't even get But no, I, I can't imagine living that hard-pressed. There is, there's no respite from anything.
0: It's, you're oppressed and beaten down. And, and And not to use the word oppressed in the way that it usually comes up nowadays, but you are oppressed by existence, beaten down by the weight of living. So in a way, your death is almost a a relief. Like, I finally get to rest now.
1: Your food is bad. Your work is hard. There is the possibility of regular disease. Yeah. But there is also the possibility, especially in the medieval period, of plague. There is the possibility of invasion. There is the possibility of political turnings that will... And I mean, I guess that has remained the case for many people's up until this present day, but there's the possibility of a political turning and you just happen to be swept up in the wave and you're a casualty and and truly nobody cares. There is not even a place where your name was written down. Yeah. Like somebody might find your bones one day, but that's it. Might find the the wreckage of your hut. Yeah. (laughs) They'll do that kind of like five second, oh, that's interesting, and walk away from it. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, this is part of this culture. And then you probably won't even get the boon of being put in a museum. Yeah. You know, because you're just one of the more pieces of the pile of bones that they found in this place.